Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. It's Wednesday night, and that means it's time for Friends in Fiction. It's the happiest night of the week when our community gathers to talk about books and stories and writing. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. And this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and libraries. Tonight, we are so excited because we are talking with Amor Tolls about the Lincoln Highway, about inspiration, about his writing process, and about mythology, because you know how I am about mythology. <laughs> we do. I know, I know. And I am sure I'll sneak in talking about one of my favorite books, his debut, Rules of Civility. But before we get rolling, we want to express our gratitude to Gallery Books who publishes our Christy and our Kristen for their ongoing support of the show. Yes, we really are so grateful to Gallery. And as you know, we're also grateful and want to encourage you to support indie booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page, where you can find Amor's books and books by the four of us and our past guests at a discount. Of course, at bookshop.org, a portion of each sale through the Friends and Fiction shop goes to support indie bookstores, and it also helps support this show. So if you enjoy watching, this is a great way to support our guests, indie bookstores, and the Friends and Fiction group all at the same time. Uh-oh. Oh, you're on mute. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm just chatting. Hi. <laughs> Don't forget that our spring box is now available for order from friends and from our friends at Oxford Exchange. Order now and you'll receive my March release, The Wedding Veil. Mary Kay's may release The Homewreckers, both signed first editions, um, hopefully on pub day. And you know what else? A special friends and fiction notebook complete with sticky flags for marking all your favorite pages. We hope you're out of sticky flags when you're <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sure there will be lots of favorites. Um, so now we are almost finished with the very first month of our Friends and Fiction Reading Challenge, which we're so excited about. Each month of the year, there will be a different reading prompt. And we challenge you not only to complete all 12 months, but also to keep track of what you've read this year. One way to do that is with our beautiful reading journal designed by us in conjunction with the independent bookstore, 
Oxford Exchange. It has this gorgeous Friends in Fiction blue linen cover and plenty of space to record your thoughts on what you're reading. So this month's prompt for January was debut novels and February is memoir or nonfiction. And I was just thinking how perfect that is because Wade Rouse was just on um, with the book club on Monday night, chatting with Brenda and Lisa. And I think he's written, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's written four memoirs. And, oh, wow. Uh, yes, which I, I didn't realize, which is amazing, like under his own name, Wade, Wade Rouse. So um, for any of you who belong to the book club who turned up there, maybe one of those books would be a great choice. But there's lots of beautiful memoirs and nonfiction out there. So go start choosing your book and grab a journal just like this one from Oxford Exchange to record it all if you want. Engage on the Facebook page and tell us what you chose. Our friend Anissa Armstrong will post about each challenge and it will be in the pinned announcements. We do not have memoirs. Nobody no. wants to read. Nope. I did the laundry and then I did the laundry again. I like know. That's the I know. Of mine. Yeah. I know. All right. Now let's welcome our guest for the evening. Amor Tolls is the New York Times bestselling author of three beloved and highly acclaimed novels. I am such a huge fan of Amor's work. And when I met him and his amazing wife, Maggie, I did that embarrassing thing of super fans. And instead of playing it cool, I blurted out, oh my God, your Amor, Rules of Civility is one of my favorite books of all time. But it looks like I didn't scare him off because... He's with us tonight. I mean, as far as we know, he might have already been scared away. I know. Not far. Might have come back. When we say welcome, Amor, he must show up. <laughs> together, together, Amor's novels, Rules of Civility, and A Gentleman in Moscow in the Lincoln Highway that we're going to talk about tonight have sold more than 5 million copies and have been translated into more than 30 languages. His novel, A Gentleman in Moscow, was on the New York Times bestseller list for two years and was named one of the best books of 2016 by the Philadelphia Inquirer, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, and NPR. The Lincoln Highway, which was released in October of last year, debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list and still sits there in the top ten. If you haven't seen it, you've been hiding on a deserted island because this book has been everywhere. After growing up in the Boston area, Amor graduated from Yale and received an MA in English from Stanford University. Shabby. Yeah. I know it's kind of shabby. Yeah. Yeah. He worked as an investment professional for over 20 years and now writes full-time in Manhattan where he lives with his wife and two children. Sean, can you bring Amor on to join us? Hi, Amor. Hello, ladies. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Hello, everyone. Everyone at home, too. <laughs> Thanks for having me. We're so happy to have you. So you know how much I loved the Lincoln Highway. I read it over the holidays, and I felt like I took a true journey with Emmett and those beloved boys. But before we dive into the origins and the process and the fascinating aspects of the Lincoln Highway, can you give our viewers and listeners just a quick overview of what the book is about? Uh, the uh, shortly before the the or before the book begins, a young uh, man from the Midwest, a young boy, uh, takes his younger brother to a county fair in uh, Nebraska. A bully picks a fight with him. He punches the bully. The bully falls down, hits his head, and dies. 
As a result, our hero, who's uh, 17, is sent to a juvenile facility, a work farm, uh, for a year and a half. Uh, the book opens the day that the warden is driving him home uh, to his family farm in Nebraska. While he's been away, his father has passed away. His mother is long gone, and the farm is in bankruptcy. And so uh, the warden is saying to him, listen, what happened to you was a freak accident. You're a good person. You've paid your debt to society. And so you should really be prepared to start your life anew. And Emmett says to the warden, that's my intention. But when the warden drives away, it turns out that two of Emmett's friends from the juvenile facility have hidden in the trunk of the warden's car. And they have a very different vision of how Emmett should spend his near future. <laughs> From that moment, everything starts to go awry. And the whole story takes place in uh, over 10 days in 1954. Which was a very good year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's, <laughs> it's such, such a great premise for a book. And, and you know, um, I think you're so well known for coming up with these incredible ideas for stories, these great premises that you tackle. You said that you've been writing since you were a kid and that ideas kind of come to you as premises. You call them, I believe, notions. I've, I've read that you've said before. So here at Friends in Fiction, we love talking about the origins of stories. With rules of civility, you've said that the idea came to you at a friend's house in Long Island when you saw photos of the New York City subways in the late 30s. And I think with the gentleman in Moscow, you were in a hotel in Geneva. That's right. Can you tell us about the Lincoln Highway and what you were doing and where you were when you were struck by this particular notion? Uh, okay. So everything you said is absolutely right. And, and uh, <laughs> for me, over the course of my life, I, I do have these notions, these premises that I usually can describe in a sentence, like a man gets trapped in a hotel for a long period of time. You know, that's sort of the notion that struck me that eventually became uh, a gentleman in Moscow. Now, when a notion like that comes to me, usually, and it's interesting to me, a sort of an idea for a story, usually within minutes, it comes in uh, more shape than that. So in the case of A Gentleman in Moscow, as soon as I had the idea of a guy trapped in a hotel for a long period of time, I immediately was like, oh, it should be set in Russia. That'd be great. And uh, it could be an aristocrat. If we start the, shortly after the revolution, an aristocrat born in the 19th century gets sentenced to house arrest in a fancy hotel across the street from the Kremlin, and he's going to spend 30 years there, cover the entire Stalinist era. You know, all that was in the first couple of minutes. And then over the course of a couple of days, I'll start to build out a scaffold of the story. Who are the other characters? What happens? What are the major events? Uh, once I've done that, and I'm still interested, then it's kind of a multi-year design process. I call it design, where I'll just keep thinking about the story in the back of my mind as I'm going about other things. Uh, and filling out notebooks uh, with more and more detail about this story. Eventually, after a couple of years, I've imagined the story to its full extent or to a great extent. Then I write an outline and then I start chapter one. So now your question is about the Lincoln Highway. And the truth is, I had this notion of the kid driving home, uh, being driven home by the warden, ready to start his life anew, and two uh, of his friends from the work facility being hiding in the trunk of the car. That was my original notion that caught my imagination. It was more than 15 years ago. I have no idea where I was. So it's not usually I know, but that time I don't remember. 
But what I can tell you is that within minutes, again, I was like, oh, it's going to take place in the mid-50s. Uh, he'll be in a farm in Nebraska or Kansas. They're going to end up going to New York in a car. And the whole thing's going to take 10 days. And all of that was very, very quick. But then you shift to, like, the notebook stage. You know, like, so, so this is an er – well, this is not the earliest. This is one of the notebooks for Lincoln Highway. This is 2017. Wow. Okay, well, the first one is 2014. And it looks like that. You know, it's just handwritten notes of me sort of wow. thinking, oh, you know, one scene after another. What would that be that place like? What's the background of this character? Why is this character doing that? What might be the first paragraph of this chapter? You know, it's that kind of work. And it's all done, as I say, years before I sit down to write chapter one. That's fascinating. When you sit down filling these notebooks, are you doing them in any sort of order or with... Um like a purpose to them or is it more you sit down and kind of whatever comes to you, you're jotting down and you put it in order later. It's more the it's more the latter in that wow. I, I have the scaffolding that tells me early on what the sequence of events is. Okay. But when I'm filling the notebooks, I'm not moving in chronological order across the narrative. It's kind of, it's a little bit whim based, which is that, you know, I'll be like, Oh, you know, I, today I'd like to work on, you know, like in the, in the Lincoln highway, several days into the story, Two, the two brothers end up on a train. And so it might be, you know, I'll sit down and say, hey, I'm going to think about the train ride. You know, how, does, how do they get on the train? What happens on the train? Uh, wow. They get split up? Yeah, they're going to get split up. That's what's going to happen. And Emmett's going to have one encounter and Billy's going to have a different encounter. And then you start to dig deeper into those. And so, so as I say, I may not have been working on the day before, the, the chapter before that. I may have been working on something entirely different, but I'll sort of hone in on some section of the book and work on it for a period of days, imagining it. And then I'll kind of move on to something else. And it doesn't, it could be anywhere in the story at that, you know, at this stage, when I write, I write from the beginning of the book towards the end. I don't, you know, I, then I'm writing chapter by chapter in the order in which it, they occur. Cause I want the language to accumulate in a very particular way. What a fascinating process. Is it? John, John, I think we have a picture. Yeah, there they are. I had a picture of the notebooks. Yeah, and that, that the one on the bottom there you can't read is that's a 2014. And if you look closely, if we zoomed in on that, it would you can see the top it says unfinished business because that's what the original name for this book was when I began writing the notebooks, mm. uh, you know, eight years ago. Wow. So Amor, I, I've read that you want to force yourself to do something new with every book. So in your words, to kind of retool every element of your craft. How did you do that with this book? And and what makes you want to do that? I mean, your your first book was such a success. It's it, it would be so easy to have just said, gosh, I got it right. I got it right the first time. Let me do that exact same thing the next time. Why do you basically reinvent the wheel each time? I, I think that's incredible. Yeah, you're right. Because you're right. Because, you know, Rules of Civility begins on New Year's Eve going into 1938, and it ends exactly a year later, kind of in the New Year's Eve going into 1939. I could have just written 1939. Yeah. That could have been the yeah. next book, you know. Um, I, I, but, you know, as someone who uh, we all approach our craft differently, uh, uh, you know, uh, and we may all approach our craft differently in each book, right? Um, we're, but for me, I do like, I'm very interested in how uh, a different structure, a different narrative might demand a different tone, a different vocabulary, a different semantics, a different poetics. And I, and I want to find, when I take a story, what is the structure that serves this tale? What is 
uh, the right poetics to service it? What are the right sort of tone of the narrative? What's the right psychological perspective? You know, so, and, and what's the right vocabulary? And, and so that's part of the fun for me. And I, but probably in the case of Lincoln Highway, for those who know my work, the biggest change without question Going from writing Gentleman in Moscow to writing the Lincoln Highway, it's not the move from uh, Russia to the Midwest or from an aristocrat in middle age to a bunch of kids or even, you know, uh, uh, from the from the 30s into the 50s. It's, you know, it's not the biggest challenge is going from a 30 year story to a 10 day story. Yeah. Yeah. A 30 year story. And, you know, I'm, I'm telling this to four people who know this, but, but for those of you who are, who are listening in a 30 year story, the nature of it is it's about evolution by definition, you know, you, cause what you have is the time. I have the time as the writer, you have the time as the readers to experience how the central character is changing over time. Yes. How he, in this case, he is maturing. You can watch, an acquaintance become a full-blown romance uh, with a count and Anna. You can watch uh, basically, in essence, a babysitting job become parenthood through the count's relationship with Sophia. You can watch mm -hmm. a, uh, a a job sort of gotten out of uh, short-term necessity become deep friendships. You know, this is about evolution, and you're watching the country evolve at the same time. And so, when you shift to a ten-day story. In this case, uh, really focused on three 18-year-old boys, roughly, and an eight-year-old boy, and an 18-year-old uh, young woman, too. When you shift to 10 days, you don't have the luxury of being able to lay out those kinds of evolution, and the reader doesn't get the benefit of that evolution. So, yeah. so in, the challenge is, how do I give the reader a sense of these the past these characters are coming from and the future that they might go to? But all through the narrow aperture of this limited time frame, and that's the you know a, a big part of the challenge uh, in in this book, and and getting that right uh, was part of the adventure of taking the different task. I love that! Wow, mm -hmm. it sounds fascinating and also terrifying to begin. Terrifying, but, but in, 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 yeah. a, in yes. a good way, though. Like that's how you grow. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, this is not my real question, but as you were talking and as I saw those notebooks, I had to ask you this. Um, you will not remember this, but we did. I can't even remember what festival it was, but we did a festival together a few years ago. And I remember in the signing line, I was sitting beside you at the signing table and you had stamps yeah. that you were putting inside the books. And so um, that was for a gentleman in Moscow. So I'm wondering, did you have stamps for Lincoln Highway? When you do yes, I had a jazz stamp for Rules of Civility, okay. and I had uh, St. Basil's Cathedral for a gentleman in Moscow, mm -hmm. and I have a, a sort of a sign I made, which is sort of a highway sign for the Lincoln Highway. I mean, almost like it looks like a you know contemporary or, or you know the shield that you would have to identify a, a highway, and uh, and I have that for the Lincoln Highway, you know, which which I should you know I. I can only use if the line is short enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I can, I, no, I remember <laughs> sitting there and it was, I, I wish I could remember where it was, but it was one of those huge festivals where like you walk out and there are all these people standing there and I'm always like panicking and like, oh my gosh, I need to hurry up and get through the line. And you had like 10 million people and you were just cool as a cucumber. And I was like, I don't know awesome. how he does this, but I need to bottle it because I am not cool in this situation. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, okay, but on to my real question. That was not it. Go ahead, um, as Patty mentioned, we really want to hear about this mythical hero, this mythical heroic journey. 
So this novel is a coming of age story for those who haven't read it of four boys in 10 days on a road trip and a 1948 Studebaker Land Cruiser. And Mary Kay found a picture of one of those so everyone could see. But the hero's journey isn't just in their trip. It's also echoed in the fictional book, Professor Abacus Abernathy's Compendium of Adventure A to Z that mixes real and mythic heroes, a book that your character, Billy, carries everywhere. Your story tracks so closely to Joseph Campbell and his idea that myths teach us to live. Oh, there's the car. Oh, there's the car. <laughs> yes. We had it. So was it intentional that you echoed um, the elements of the mythic journey here? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I, I guess that I, I have to take a step back and sort of give it the kind of the way that it unfolds for me and the sort of the bigger perspective, which is that I think that because it's a book about 18 year olds, uh, and as I say, you know, you're right, there's an eight-year-old brother, but there's really three 18-year-old-ish boys and this 18-year-old woman, Sally. And, and I think what's interesting about that moment in our lives, all of our lives, is that the time, from the time that we're zero to 16, all of us are receiving uh, instruction of, of a variety of kinds from different sources, we're receiving it from our parents, from school, from our church, and from the community at large. And the instruction is coming in all kinds of forms, but it is to basically to tell us uh, who we should be, uh, what's right and wrong, what we should, uh, how, what we should, how, how we should interpret the world, what we should expect of ourselves, how we should treat others. This is all being sort of communicated to us between zero and sixteen. But around the time we turn seventeen or eighteen or nineteen, we suddenly have this sort of revelation that we get to decide this all ourselves. Actually, we don't have to to follow all this instruction that we've been receiving, we have the right to figure out what we think is right and wrong, what, what, we, what we are capable of as individuals, what we should do with our lives, how we should treat others. And when that moment comes, which of course is very exciting for us all when it happens, inevitably there's a degree to which consciously or unconsciously we shed what our parents told us or the school told us, the church told us. And we say, we, I will never do that and redirect ourselves. Or consciously, unconsciously, we may amplify something and say, I want to I want to be like my father in this respect or my mother in this respect. And, you know, and I want to pursue that in my life. And so so that can kind of go on. Now, the other component here, though, goes to your, your, your question, is that a big factor in the way that the church, the school, the community, our parents give us instruction and guidance and shape us is through narratives. Our parents tell us about their own childhood and about what they've been through. Uh, you know, the church it comes in the form of parables in the Christian church and tradition, but the you know, Jewish tradition has a very similar uh, uh, setup. Um, you know, the, the, obviously in school, you're reading novels and history books. Um, so narratives are being, are a part of the means by which uh, we are shaped. And so each of the kids in the story has narratives which they're kind of carrying with them which either they're going to follow or it's shaped them. And, you know, in the case of Duchess, who's a kid who kind of grew up in a tough section of New York, his father was a failed Shakespearean actor who ended up kind of a drunken con man slash performer on dying vaudeville. Duchess was surrounded with people like his dad. And uh, so what he saw was sort of the great mythic stories for him of all these crazy performers, you know, who had big personalities and outsized personalities and, uh, and, and doing, you know, magic shows or escape artists or what have you. And, and he has his father, Duchess is not really educated, 
He's his father doing the same, say, 20 Shakespearean monologues over and over and over. He's heard them hundreds of times. And he's never seen the plays, not really, probably, but he's heard the, these monologues, these famous Shakespearean speeches. And, and so he, that infuses him. You know, but meanwhile, you have Sally, who's obviously very affected by uh, her upbringing in the church. And she's constantly talking about the parables and criticizing them or, in, or reversing them or, or adopting <laughs> them, to, depending on how she's feeling. And for Billy, we really have uh, this book of, of mythic heroes. So uh, whether those are heroes from history or from classical mythology or from, you know, from novels, this book of 26 uh, stories of 26 male heroes. Uh, is what he has. And and he's read it 20 times and, and it sort of shapes his vision of the world. So each kind of, each of the characters has their own sort of narrative that they're, that they're filtering and that affects how they see the world and what they think about. Now, uh, I'll, I'll stop because I'm going on too on about this, but I, no. I, lay, I lay this all out because it's kind of going back to the question is once you instill this story, this book of stories, it's very natural for where Ulysses is one of the uh, stories in that book. The, the life of Achilles is in the book, uh, the boy's book, that, that those who start to trickle up through the narrative in their own way, because, of course, they're on Billy's mind. And so it became very natural to kind of weave, to bring to the surface these stories that Billy was reading and to see how they started to mirror or contrast or influence the events that the young men were going through on their own adventure. Mm. And so, yeah, they kind of become uh, together. Mm. That's incredible. Um, you also leave most these, these four boys mostly parentless, which is also mm. pretty mythical. So can you tell us about that decision? Yeah. You know, that may be, um, it's, a, it may be, it's probably laziness. I think that's. Oh, going to <laughs> oh yeah, that that's the first word that yeah, comes we, to mind when I hear your process. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, flacker. Yeah, flacker. And the book is this big. No, I, I this, you're, you're, we, we all we all we're all we've all been through this moment, right? You so you have a narrative, yeah. and have you kind of think what it's about, and or you, you have some sense. I have sort of an unspecific sense of what my books are about, but I, I have a sort of a sense of direction or whatever. Is that you then are starting to make decisions about what's in and what's out, you know, and I call it the great circle, you know, and, and, and the, or the great, the grand circumference is really the way I, I'm saying great circle because of Maggie Ship said, but it's the grand circumference <laughs> the way I normally think of it. And then the grand circumference is you take your story and your protagonist and you, this circle gets drawn around and everything that matters to the tale is in within that circumference and needs to be in the book. And everything that doesn't serve the story in that way should be outside that circle, and and because otherwise it gets in, it's in, it's, it gets in the way. Yeah. So there's this sort of not a very scientific process. A lot of it's instinct for me of beginning to make choices of who are the characters, who are the bit characters, how many places are we going, how, what kind of conversations are we having, and and in what detail, how many objects these you know do we are going to be introduced to? I mean, good lord. And so, and, and some of that is is you know what about the family life. And I think that in, in approaching this story, my instincts very early on where this is about the kids and it's about them inventing themselves. Yeah. And they're going to have this very strong sense of their parents that they've inherited. Duchess is cl clearly very affected by uh, his father's sort of almost the ghost of his father's presence and the loss of his mother as a young person. Billy is very affected by his mother, you know, who Duchess's mother uh, died. Billy's left home, you know, probably because of what we would call postpartum depression at this time. But, but uh, 
you know, but so the, the influence and, and the, the Billy and Emmett's father has died, but has a huge influence on Emmett yeah. uh, because of, of both the fact that he was an honorable person, but he was also a man of folly. You know, a guy who wanted to be a farmer, but wasn't very good at it and kind of ran the family into bankruptcy as a result. And, and Emmett both admires and, you know, it's driven crazy by that fact of his father. So I, I had my instinct was I wanted the power of the parenting, the parental impact to be very felt. And we're going to learn about those things and we're going to see it in the way the kids behave. But it's really about them beginning their own life and trying, as I said earlier, to steer clear of that stuff or respond against it or to save what little sliver of it mattered to them. And so it, it was it was. For the purpose of the story, it was the parents got pushed outside the grand circumference, you know, by, by you know, whether it was through death by illness, you know, disappearance <laughs> by abandonment, you know, or, or you know, being on the run. Uh, and, the, and the kids were really going to get the, the, the territory of the story to themselves, you know, mm-hmm. at least on the ground, while the parental influence was going to constantly be sort of barraging them from the, through their memories. So it's sort of like that, that's kind of the way that ended up happening. But that's why I say it's kind of lazy because it would have been so much more complicated to have the parents there all the time. Good Lord. As somebody who's, who's had to cut, who writes long anyway, I, I totally get that. Um, you know, we're just sort of segueing into point of view. Yeah. And in um, Lincoln Highway, we don't just get one POV, we get six. And I have to tell you, I was just thinking about when you were talking about my favorite quote from this book comes early on. And it's when Emmett tells um, the man that he apprentices with, Mr. Schultz, about becoming a carpenter. And he says, the way I figure it, Mr. Schultz, it was Job who had the oxen and Noah who had the hammer. And um, I I don't know. I, to me, that sort of some gave me an early viewpoint into who Emmett was. That's right. And um, it, I, I love that he, he was polite about it, but he felt free not to take people's advice when he didn't want to. Anyway, so without spoilers, there are a couple characters in Lincoln Highway we only hear from once or twice. You know, it was seamless, and it, but it also felt necessary to hear from all of them to get a fully rounded picture. And, you know, you just talked about the great circle. So who did you decide? How did you decide who who's inside the circle and yep. who's out? Yep. Um, and and the, the, the truth about that is if you went back to, you know, the early notebooks where I was designing the story from the beginning, the idea was 10 days. Right. But it was going to be told from Emmett and uh, Duchess's perspective back and forth for the full 10 days. We'd hear from Emmett and then we'd hear Duchess in day one and day two from Emmett and Duchess. Maybe we'd hear from them twice, but we'd go back and forth. The baton of telling the story would be handed back and forth over the course of the 10 days. Um, And I got into actually beginning to write chapters. And uh, and as I was writing the chapters, it began and and thinking through some of the, the way the chapters would be realized. What really became clear to me was that uh, that the voices of some of these other people deserved to be heard. They needed to be heard. And that was partly because I knew those characters so well. I knew what Sally sounded like. 
And she appears in the first chapter. And we hear her kind of with, with uh, and in the morning of, of the second day, we hear her battering back and forth with them. And we get a sense of who she was. But we don't really get the really acute sense of who she was. And, um, and I felt like, you know what? The reader should hear her. You know, I can hear her. They should hear her. And so, so and same thing with Wooly. Like, you know, it's not going to be enough to hear what Emmett thinks of Wooly and what Duchess thinks of Wooly. We need to hear how Wooly sees the world because yeah. I think that's really the, the secret to understanding him. It's, it's sort of just to look through his eyes for a minute and hear his tone. And, and then, you know, we, we it, it would add richness to uh, not only our understanding of him, but of the tale as a whole. And so, uh, yeah, I went from being a two-point-of-view story to an eight-point-of-view story. In the end, there's eight and all. And, um, and so, you know, the decision of, of, of who goes back to that sort of instinct a little bit, which is like you're kind of uh, – I uh, Emmett – I'm not giving much away because this is pretty early in the book, but Emmett and Billy end up on a train, and they get separated, as I said earlier, and, and Emmett stumbles into uh, a, uh, a Pullman car two young, rich men who are a little bit older than him, not much older, but a little bit older, there having after a night of debauchery in their tuxedos. And, and Emmett witnesses this, and it makes an impression on him. And they talk, three of them, there's sort of some humor in it, and et cetera. And it triggers some thoughts and, uh, for Emmett. Meanwhile, uh, Billy is encountering a, a, a gentleman named Pastor John, who's a rather uh, sinful pastor. Not a good guy. <laughs> not a good guy. Not a good guy. And, and he's going to get bailed out by uh, uh, you know a, a black middle-aged uh, veteran uh, named Ulysses. And, and so, so those are two scenes in a way they're running in parallel. But for whatever reason, my instinct was we're going to see that Pullman car scene from Emmett's perspective. We're going to meet these two drunken characters, but we don't need to know what their thought process is. You know, we don't need to know how they see the world. But as soon as I had Pastor John in my head. I knew what he sounded like. And it made so much more sense for him to tell the story of discovering Billy than vice versa. And then it made so much sense for Ulysses to come in and tell the discovery of, of Pastor, him discovering Pastor John and the boy. And, uh, wow. and have this sort of them, partly because I wanted to protect Billy from the, for the, his, his identity for a while. I didn't want the reader to know too much of what he sounded like yet. I wanted that to be, you know, I wanted, so I wanted the, the outsiders to be looking at Billy, meeting Billy, talking to Billy and being affected by Billy. And so anyway, so, so those decisions get made in that way. And then, you know, eventually you do get to hear from Billy, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, but, but, uh, but at any rate, uh, you know, I, there's not a great science to it, but that's the way it worked out. But, but I cannot imagine this book being a two person story and, and no, I said, even no. when it was even when it was two perspective, all the events would have happened just as they happen in the current book, but it would have been a much less interesting book, I think, mm. for the reader, yeah. uh, you know, for I me mean, to write or for you to read. Yeah, I mean, the landscape that you created was so vivid with this cast of characters. Um, I can't imagine leaving out Wooly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or, or Billy or or Sally and um, my I, I swear to God I just love when Sally's flinging things because she's so mad. I yeah. love her. She is so good. <laughs> I've been so that good. way. And even before you tell us why she's mad, we know why she's mad. <laughs> <laughs> she's had enough of that. She's had enough. <laughs> 
All right, Amor, you know, being a lover of rules of civility, I saw some spider web connections, just yep. a few little um, filaments. Wallace Woolley Martin is the nephew of Wallace Walcott. Yes. From the rules of civility. There's also an army watch and yes. a camp in the Adirondacks that are both in the novel. And I yeah. loved revisiting that for such an impactful scene. But you call it contextual overlap. Was there a reason you did this? Or is it just did I say that? <laughs> That's great. You said that. We're so brilliant. You're so it. smart. Yeah. I'm, 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 Actually, I said it and then gave you credit. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't call it the contextual overlap. But yes, go ahead. I didn't interrupt. <laughs> anyway, was there a reason you did it or was it just fun Easter eggs or did you did you want to revisit it? I'm curious. It, it is uh, an aspect of it is that it's fun for me. I mean, that's a, that, that's an aspect. It, it is it is um, it is true for those who have not read Rules of Civility, uh, have not read both Lincoln Highway and Rules of Civility. You should know that it doesn't matter. You don't have to read one to enjoy the other or to understand the other or to get the most from the other. Um, but there are narrative overlaps between the two books. And, and I think that for someone who's read the two books closely and, and is fond of them, it, it does add a dimension for them. And, and that I think could be interesting and entertaining, I guess, and, and, and thematically intriguing. And, and I, yeah. I guess the reason why do I do it? It, go, it goes back to being a young reader and loving in, say, Faulkner when you would run in to mm -hmm. someone that you had read about in a different Faulknerian story, you know, because he had his Yachnipotafa County, uh, you know, that, we're, we're Oxford, our Oxford books is, is our, is our, is our bookstore of the night. Correct. Am I right? Do I get it right? Yeah. Um, exchange. Yeah. The Oxford Exchange. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Oxford within, exchange, yeah. within two miles of Oxford Exchange, and which is a terrific store, by the way, I love those guys. Okay. Within two miles of the store is, is, is Faulkner's house and you can go right. there and, and on it, the wall is the map he drew of Yachnipotafa, where he's written in, and you can buy a reproduction of it, which I have in my office, which is all his sort of notes, his reminders of, of who was where and what was, where did people wow. live and what events happened, you know, in this, what he called his posted, postage stamp of the world, his little postage stamp of the world. And so he's created this mythic community. And over the course of, of multiple novels, many short stories, there are these overlapping elements. You know, the family of the sound of the fury and Absalom Absalom are the same family, two of his most important books. But but you know, like a, a great example to me is is he's got this family who's who's wily and illicit and and brusque called the uh, the Snopes. The Snopes, and they sort of show up. You know, suddenly they'll be in the middle of a story, and then the door will open, and the Snopes will come in. You're like, oh man, here come the Snopes. Here we go. <laughs> now I know what these guys are all about. And it was always so exciting, as I said, when these things, these moments would happen. And it's like a door opening up in one narrative and you can kind of the light from the other narrative suddenly shining in. You can kind of see through the window. Oh yeah, that's right. That's, that's a whole, that whole group of events is, is just out through that door. And, uh, and, and that, you know, I can go, I can make connections or not depending on, on my interest in doing so. Um, and, but so anyway, so, so as I've written my books, I have enjoyed at some point during the imagining of a book, uh, suddenly I'd be like, Oh, you know what? Wooly should be Wallace's nephew. That makes so much sense because they're so alike and they, and they come from, from the world in such a similar way. And then they, they confront the world in a similar way. And, and so, so you kind of have these connections. Uh, Dickie Vanderweil, who's 
uh, a character in Rules of Civility uh, appears in A Gentleman Moscow, plays a very central role in A Gentleman Moscow, for those of you who read those books. But he's a young, sort of carefree, somewhat careless, uh, almost a dilettante in Rules of Civility. In Gentleman Moscow, it's 15 years later, he's been through the war, he's been an officer, he's now the attache to a general, and eventually he's working in the State Department, i.e. for the CIA. Um, but his personality is the same. The way he relates to Katie and the way he relates to the Count is the same. And the uh, sort of the, the sort of casual carefreeness that has wisdom behind it plays a role in both Katie's understanding of herself through conversations with Dickie. And the same thing happens to the Count. He has critical uh, breakthroughs in his own thought process because of this sort of carefree conversations with Dickie, who is easy to take for granted as an individual. Um, so I enjoy sort of following Dickie into the story. And that's a pleasure to me, but also, you know, as I say, it's one of these doors that open up that I, that's fun for me. As a reader, it feels like we're in on a secret, right? Yeah. If you notice without being told, I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I know that army watch. I'm in on this secret <laughs> secret, right? You feel, you feel like, um, like I said, there's this kind of spider web connection. So yeah. your stories are part of a bigger whole and not so separate, even though they mm -hmm. are. Okay, we could obviously ask you questions until midnight and we have so <laughs> many more of them, but we promised we wouldn't do that to you. Um, and I cannot believe how many live questions are rolling in. They are so just many. so many. So let's try and get to some of them. Kristen, do you wanna kick us off, ask a couple? Yeah, we have a ton of questions specifically about the notebooks, which is great because I have a lot of questions about the notebooks too. In fact, I would like to do an entire second hour, just like the notebook deep dive with Amor Tools. But um, okay, I, I'm going to combine two of them kind of into one question. Kathy Hamdy Swink would like to know, does he take his notebooks everywhere? Um, for instance, does he take them on vacation? And how many active notebooks are there at once? And also Diane Clark would like to know, have you started writing all of your books by writing in notebooks or has that evolved as your career has evolved? Uh, I've always used them. Um, I, I do take them everywhere. But what I'll do is, is, is I mean, because your, your question was, was uh, right on in that I have multiple notebooks that serve different purposes. So I have different stories that I've been thinking about over the long term at various levels of development, as it were. And so some, and then I also have notebooks that are, are uh, catch-all, where it's just different things I'm writing about and thinking mm -hmm. about that may become a bigger story down the road. You know what I mean? There might be a new idea or it might be a sort of a little insight that I'm fleshing out or, or a short story concept or whatever. And so I have both the, the notebooks dedicated to the long-term narratives and I have the more general ones. When I travel, I'm probably carrying one of one of each of those. I'm carrying wow. general, which I can use at any time for any purpose, and I'm carrying probably whatever narrative I'm 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 delving into deeply. My typical uh, day is I am at this desk at uh, you know let's say around eight thirty or something like that at work, but at noon, and I tend to work on a keyboard at my desk. At noon, I will take a notebook to lunch. I'll go to lunch by myself in New York. I'll sit at a bar at the rest bar of a restaurant. And I will then write by hand uh, kind of during lunch, uh, you know, where I'm beginning to think about, let's say, what I'm going to be working on the next day, fleshing that out in greater detail. So uh, they do travel with me. I do have multiple books. I do have multiple ideas that I have not fully realized yet, you know, and that I continue to think about. And I, you know, uh, well, you know. I want to know how you get the covers to look like that. that that's like my new one. That's my new one. Oh, cool. Come on, flash it again. I'll hold it up. Come on. 
Christy. You want to? Okay. Yeah. Um, so do you stamp the covers? That's what Patty. Have, yeah, that I have like yeah. little. Yeah, exactly. That's a little rubber stamp. Okay. Okay. Um, Carrie Soderman wants to know. I love this um, question. Have you ever had an idea for a book, started writing it, and and then decided it wasn't going to work? Um, you know, as was mentioned earlier, when I was 25 and I had moved to New York City uh, and I'd been writing since I was, I'd, all I'd ever want to do is be a writer since I was in first grade. Wow. And I had written in high school and in college and in graduate school. And I was published in the Paris Review when I was about 24. Wow. And then uh, Shabby, I'm telling you, Shabby. Yeah. I know. <laughs> You're such a slacker. And then I got a, I, you know, I joined a friend of mine who had started an investment firm and, and I worked, we worked together for over 20 years and that firm is still, you know, around is very significant and thriving and, you know, and everything. Um, but I, I, I was in the investment business uh, for that 21 year period. And the first 10 years I stopped writing as we were sort of building the company and, and recruiting colleagues and clients and refining our craft, et cetera. And, but I kind of knew I got, I got to get back to writing or I'm going to really end up being bitter and miserable as an older person. And uh, so when I was about in my 30s, I set out to write a novel and uh, it took me about seven years. And uh, by the end of the seven years, I didn't like the book, you know, and so that ended up in a, um, in a drawer behind oh. in, a, in my, well, I don't like to think about it very often, but, but I just, and, and then, so what I, what, what I want, and I, what I was like, you know, listen, if you spend seven years creating a work of art you don't like, you should reflect on that. That was my opinion. And so, so I did, I reflected on it. And, and a big thing that stood out about what was wrong with that project is that it was not outlined. And again, different writers are trying to achieve different things in different books. And they're trying to achieve different things from book to book. But so far, I'm very interested in how a novel can have a, symph a symphonic impact on the reader. And what I mean by that is, is I'm, I'm interested in how, uh, and I want to achieve for the reader that in a book of mine, uh, like in a great symphony of Mozart's or Beethoven's, that there are, uh, are themes that are playing and being repeated and revisited over the course of the symphony, but they're being picked up by different instruments, played alone in the solos, it's in a slow, sad fashion by an oboist, but then suddenly it's been, you know, by, for full orchestration by strings at a bigger tempo and with the horn section behind it. And I want the, you know, the, the moods to, rise and fall. I want the tempo to rise and fall and there to be crescendos and, and solos and, you know, but, I, so, but, you know, in this sort of fashion that, that feels like it all makes sense. And importantly, like in a great Mozart or Beethoven symphony, when you get to the final chords, the final movement, building and building in the final chords, there's that moment where you're in the, in the symphony hall and you're like, Oh, that, there it is. That was beautiful. That's, you know, perfectly done. It shouldn't have been longer. It shouldn't have been shorter. It's a perfect conclusion to the symphony. And you feel fulfilled by it and excited by it, whatever. That's kind of what I want from, from my readers to experience from my books. And my point being, I can't do that if I don't outline the book well, carefully in advance. Because otherwise, I can't bring these sort of themes over different ways and have them come to a crescendo uh, in that kind of is the picking up what was from the first third of the book and, and amplifying it and revisiting it and and expressing it in new ways for the reader. And, and, and I need to kind of think through the whole thing in advance in order to achieve that goal, I think. And that's what I didn't like about that first novel. And so the answer to the question was, have I ever started something and not continued? The answer is absolutely. 
in many small ways, but at least in one giant way that cost me seven years of my life. Wow. 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 Um, and, and, but it doesn't, co- it didn't cost. No, that's right. And I had a lot of the time. It wasn't like I that. mean, you, what you learned and what you brought forward into your next work made that one happen. That is yeah. correct. Patty. Yes. Yeah. Mary Kay, you're muted. Mary Kay, you're muted, my friend. Mm-hmm. I'm asking if we have time for another um, viewer question. I had to mute because my dog was whining at the door. Do we have yes, time please. for another? Yeah, okay. I've got time. There's just so many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Claudia Dursa wonders if Amor will re- revisit Moscow or the gentleman later in life with the changing political climate. Like, are you interested in the Cold War? Are you interested in... That's a sneaky way of, of asking, what are you working on? You know, I, yeah. I, I'm not so far, I'm not too much of a sequel guy, you know, and, and, um, and, I, and I, I really like to leave the future of my characters in the capable hands of my readers, you know, and that's like that. really, and I, and I, I really, I feel very happy with where the count is at the end of a gentleman in Moscow. And, um, right. and so I would not go further in the same way that I would not, go further with Katie at the end of rules of civility. I think I've, or Tinker, I think I've told you everything that you should know that I should tell you about Tinker and Katie at the end of rules of civility. Eve kept, became interesting to me. And I wrote a series of short stories about Eve, who's a character in rules of civility who, who dashes off to Hollywood in 1938. She's a real troublemaker. So I kind of revisited that and I may uh, do that as a book at some day. Um, for, you know, if, if I was ever going to revisit gentleman in Moscow, I would probably revisit, Sophia in Paris or America rather than to go back to Russia. Um, mm. But I, but, but I may never do, do either of those things. So, so uh, you know, and, 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 you know, the next book I'm working on is different. It's, you know, it's a different group of people, a different place, a different time. It's different. You know, mm. it'll have some weird overlap, but it's mostly different. I think that's all we're going to get out of what you're working on. <laughs> I think we've tried a couple different ways and that's, that's all. I think, I think it's in the vault. Yeah. I know, right? I like that. Okay, and we're, there's so many um, viewer questions. If you get a chance later, you can stop by the Facebook page and answer some of them. But we were talking I'm sure, earlier. I'm sure I'm, this is not – I mean, I, I will try – also, if you can go to amortolls.com. Oh. And the contact page, you guys an email right to me. So oh, if you've yeah. got a, if you've got a pressing question that I have not addressed either on your Facebook page or here tonight, you can always send it to me, and and I will uh, do my best to get back to you. Oh, good. That's no, awesome. The most pressing question they want. The most pressing question they want to know is what you're drinking, Amor. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> an old fashioned. That's an old fashioned bourbon. Yep, and I feel like this has been one long writing tip. You have. Yep. I mean, I feel this is going to be an episode I watch again for sure. Me too. Mm-hmm. But do you have one good writing tip you could share with our viewers? You know what, my for me, it's and this, this is it's pithy. So I hope it doesn't. It's not. But you know, for the re, the truth is that my my only real good tip is 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 because uh, it's what's it's what's helped me is read, write, repeat. You know. Yep. <laughs> so since, yep. since I was a kid, you know, you I'd read deeply into some arena. And then I'd go and write, not necessarily when I was really young, I just try to copy what they were doing. You know, I read, I read a Ray Bradbury short story and, you know, science fiction short story. And I go write a Ray Bradbury short, science fiction short story. But over time, it was more that uh, I might delve 
take a year where I'm reading the works of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, let's say, and and to really sort of let that sink in mm. and then to occasionally sort of recognize what what is it about his work that's so compelling and so unusual? Uh, and what is he doing? What is he trying to achieve? How does he achieve it? And to eventually let that influence an experimentation of my own, which may not be mm. a Marquez-like story. It may be a story set in, you know, New York City among, you know, at a cocktail party. But yet there's something in the way that he's approaching things that I'll, I'll sort of allow to kind of, in essence, change my instincts about the way that I would approach the scene, change my habits, explore a different way of, mm. of visiting a ground that I've, you know, visited before. And, and so that's why I say read, write, repeat is, is a very genuine uh, uh, recommendation. And I do, I have a book club. I'm in a book club, I mean, there's four of us. We've been together for 18 years, 17, 18 years. We meet on a monthly basis over dinner to talk about a novel every month. Uh, and we read by projects. So like I was saying, we will take an author or a theme or a locale, and we will read five, six, seven books in a row in chronological order. Wow. By that wow. author, from that area, from that moment in time, as a way of sort of gaining a deeper understanding of, you know, one of those things. And, uh, and so, so yeah, I, I find that's been extremely fruitful to, for me as a writer. So now we obviously have to know what your book club is reading right now. <laughs> you know, we just finished uh, a, a project on, we, 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 we had a long-term project where we read Nobel Prize winners in literature mm -hmm. uh, who had not written in English initially. And so we read Thomas oh. Mann. We read a lot of Thomas Mann. We read, okay. um, oh, amazing, Nagub Mahfouz, who's the only, was the first person to win the Nobel Prize in literature who wrote in Arabic. And wow. he wrote something called the Cairo Trilogy which is three novels. There's a saga about a, an extended family in Cairo uh, between 1900 and the Second World War. It's an amazing series of books. We now, so more recently, we, we just read Patrick White, who's the only Australian to ever win the Nobel Prize in literature. We read four of his books. And now we're reading, we're just about to launch an extended visit to Ireland, starting with the works of James Joyce, but then moving on to other Irish writers. That's okay. awesome. Fun. I want to join the Irish. Oh, I know. Connection. I was going to say, Patty, that sounds like right up your alley. <laughs> I know, right up my alley. Okay, Amor, if you wouldn't mind sticking around just for a couple more minutes, please. We have one more question for you. Yeah. But first, we want to talk about what's going on real quick with our amazing friends and fiction community. Yep. yep. Just a quick reminder that our writer's block uh, on our writer's block podcasts, um, which we will always post links to under announcements each time a new one goes out. Uh, they pop up new every Friday on the last episode. Ron and Patty were joined by Rachel Hawkins, our friend Rachel Hawkins, to talk about her new novel, Reckless Girls, which actually appeared in Entertainment Weekly this month and was reviewed in the New York Times this week. So we're super happy for that. We love Rachel. Um, this week, Ron and our friend Nancy Johnson will talk with Lily Damalola Blackburn about diverse uh, debuts. So don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are at it, hitting those subscription buttons, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter and our YouTube channel. So you never miss a thing. You can also find selected friends and fiction back episodes on Loco Plus, a new streaming platform, which also includes lots of brand new content from other independent creators. 
And if you're not hanging out with us yet in the Friends in Fiction official book club, you are missing out. The group, which is separate from us, is run by our friends Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner and is now more than 10,000 strong. So join them on February 4th for Happy Hour with Ron Block. Did I say January? February 4th for Happy Hour with Ron Block and author Nancy Johnson. And make sure to join us for our next episode next week on Wednesday, right here at 7. It'll be Thriller Night. We're going to welcome Al Fair Burke and Allison Pataki. Then on February 9th, we'll host Marie Benedict and Fiona Davis. And Brenda Janowitz will join us for the after show. And if you're ever wondering about what our schedule is, it's always on the Friends and Fiction website and on the header graphic on our Facebook page. Okay, Amor. We love asking this. We ask it of almost anybody. And I know you grew up in Boston. Um, I was right down there by you in Philadelphia. But what were you, the values around reading and writing in your childhood home? I know you wanted to be a writer since you were young, but what were the family values around reading and writing? Uh, my Both of my parents were college educated. And my father was uh, an English major in college okay. and ended up, uh, a banker, but he really admired, uh, grew up, you know, admiring uh, Hemingway and Fitzgerald uh, in the way that many, you know, young men of his generation did, you know, uh, and, and of course, not just um, uh, their writing, but sort of their whole lives, you know, he was, he was so, you know, with the, with the expat aspect of Hemingway's life and, in Paris and, you know, Fitzgerald's sort of the glamorous life of the, he led and, you know, get drinking with, with Zelda and the Plaza hotel and heading out to Hollywood. And, you know, so he just thought the whole thing was extraordinary. Um, and, and the writing as well. And so, so I did, I did grow up in a house where, um, where reading, uh, reading novels was, was, uh, was very much a part of the fabric of, of everybody's personality. That's awesome. All right. Before you leave, can you tell our viewers where they can find you? I know you have a really informative website. Yeah. Um, are you on social media? Where can you find you? For a second, I thought you meant like, what restaurant do I eat lunch at? Patty, I'm not even going to tell you that. I was going to say, I promise I'll just sit quietly and write in my notebook. I promise. I was thinking about the people who freak out when they see you, like writing in yeah. public. And this like, that's Amor Tolls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yes, you can find me at amortolls.com is the easiest way. And, and I, I do put a lot of material up there. And as I said, I do, if you go to the contact page, I do have a, a you know, I, I, I communicate with those on my email list a couple of times a year to let them know what I'm working on or thinking and stuff like that. And so you can obviously, uh, you know, join me there as well. But I will be on, as, as, uh, as, as Patty mentioned, uh, on the website is a list of all the events I'll be doing in the next six months. And I will be speaking about the Lincoln Highway in, you know, multiple states, uh, about over 20 events in the next six months. And so if you're in my neck of the woods, please come. And I noticed on, on your Instagram today, you put the book tour. So if yes. somebody's looking for it, they can they can find it there too. Twitter, Instagram, correct. Yes. Yeah. I have a Facebook page. I'm not as good as you guys at keeping up to date on it. I'm, I'm, I'm totally impressed by the ways, all the different ways that you guys are reaching people. It's overwhelming. <laughs> Amor, thank you so much for coming tonight. You are so much fun to talk to and we've learned so much and it's just been amazing. Thank you for coming. Thanks to the four of you and thanks everybody listening at home. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good Bye. Bye.
Great. All right, everyone. Now make sure you stay for the after show and don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We're live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you will not miss a thing. So we'll see you in a minute at the after show. Oh my gosh, that was so fascinating. Welcome everyone to the after show. Um, that was yes, fascinating. Great. I think we could have asked him questions and same yes. with questions for at least. I have like 11,000 more questions. Well, and you know, we've talked yeah. about this before and it was so interesting to hear him say this. I remember reading Rules of Civility and loving it so much and then picking yeah. up a gentleman in Moscow and loving it so much, but thinking, the same person wrote these two books. Like they just seemed so, so to hear him say that he totally reinvents himself every time yeah. makes so much sense. And I feel, I think it was so important for people to hear, or, or maybe it was only important for me to hear <laughs> that, that he spent seven years on a never, novel that yeah. never saw the light of day. Yeah. yeah. This astounding writer whose last three novels have, you know, there's more than 5 million copies in print and he has a novel he spent seven years on that is in a drawer. It's crazy. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean, it's, it's a good reminder, though, I, that, that you know, he could have given up after that and thought, oh, I'm not cut out for this. I'm good at the finance stuff. Let me go do that. But yeah. instead, he had a dream and he stuck with it. And I think that's uh, it's a good reminder to all of us, whatever we dream of doing. You know, I thought it was interesting I that he I thought it was interesting that he doesn't research in a linear way. Yeah. He just mm-hmm. kind of lets himself go down those rabbit holes. Yep. And then once he's done that he plots in a linear way and that and writes in a linear way. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. On his website, there's a Q and a, and he talks about, which we didn't get to tonight and I wanted to, but we didn't. Um, he talks about why the Lincoln highway ends up in the book and how those postcards end up in the book. And it came from falling down those research rabbit holes that then shifted huh. the entire book. So interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating. So, um, you know, I just just was reading The Lincoln Highway and just finishing up Kent Kruger's This Tender Land, which I started I started the listening to the audiobook when we had him on. And um I and I so I wasn't listening except when I was on a road trip and I haven't been on any. So I'm just now <laughs> finishing up, but um, you know, that's another um, epic Odyssean, yeah. is that, that Odyssean? Yeah. Odyssean journey, road trip, and um, as Lincoln Highway is. And then I'm listening to our friend Colleen Oakley's upcoming book, which is a road trip about a <laughs> elderly woman and her college dropout companion who are on the lamb from the law. And I'm wondering if you all, if you all love a road trip novel, like I do. Oh, love road trip novels. Yeah. And road trip movies. I mean, think back to Thelma and Louise, like road trips. And I actually love road trips, right? As long as I'm driving and not in the passenger seat. Yeah. I read what I cannot remember the name of this book and I'm going to look at, I'm going to look it up really quick, but, um, well, never mind. I'll tell you all about it in a minute after I look up the title because it's really <laughs> annoying to talk about a book when you can't remember the title. So I just won't tell you, but it was a road trip book and it was so good. You know, 
That's what my memoir is going to have to be about. You know how earlier I was saying if I wrote a memoir, it would just be I threw in a load of laundry. You would have the most laundry. fascinating memoir. You've interviewed everyone. Say, You've met every dog. famous person you in the guys, world. Do you guys you lived know? in Paris. You lived in I Paris. did. I did. But I, I, my best You're friends trip. with us. I mean, what, what more do you need? I just really right need there, to write about you guys. Memoir. Spill all your, I'll spill all your secrets. Um, no, the, um, the most fascinating road trip I've ever been on is the one I went on, um, it, on a tour bus with Chubby Checker and his band. Um, he picked me up in Florida. We went all the way to California and he dropped me off in Pennsylvania at my friend Kristen's house so I could meet her new baby. Like, how funny is that? I slept in one of the bunks on, I mean, it was a band tour bus. I had like a kitchen and a bathroom. You have and, to write a story about that. I, I mean, I slept, how is that slept, not in your memoir? I slept in a bunk. <laughs> this is the plot. No, <laughs> no this is what, uh, yeah, it is actually. It's the, it's the um, John Candy. Um, yeah, it's the mom journey. Remember when she's yeah. Trying to get home to Chicago. Oh, cooler than that, though. I promise. Yes. It's cool. We, we stopped in, we stopped some it's some like little town in Nevada, and he didn't want me to gamble because he doesn't believe in gambling. So like I snuck off in the middle of the night to gamble. Like I was just a, it was crazy. I, I'm gonna I, you know what? I'm gonna send a picture. Um Next week, I'm going to we'll, we'll do a picture next week of me standing outside oh, yeah. this tour bus that says chubby across it. And the funniest thing about riding on chubby checkers tour bus, well, there are a lot of funny things. Um, but um, He actually occasionally drives his own tour bus, like when the tour bus driver needs to get sleep. So can you imagine rolling down the road and you're like, oh, that's chubby checkers tour bus because it says chubby checker and the wildcats on the side. <laughs> and then you look at the window and it's chubby checker driving his own tour bus. Wouldn't you be like, oh my gosh. He's so, oh my God. I have so many fun stories with him. He was, he's such a great guy. I took a college, I took a college uh, road trip with my besties when we were juniors in high school. Somehow, we convinced our parents to let four of us load into my friend's 68 Mustang and go look at colleges. And so we went to um, we went to Florida. We, we had friends who had graduated, you know, a year ahead of us who were at, at these colleges. Maybe it was our senior year. So we went to Florida, which was none of us wanted to go there. <laughs> Sorry. Kristen, hey. we went to Georgia and I was like, no, I'm not going to Georgia. It's too big. We went to Emory. We went to Duke. We went to Chapel Hill and we, you know, we bought, uh, we bought wine <laughs> in a gas station somewhere. It was pickle pink. Tickle you probably bought it at Quinn's Ken's Quickie Mart in Chapel Hill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was definitely someplace sketchy. I'll say that. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, road trips are, um, they're mythical. Somebody just wrote, um, her, uh, Doris Biddick said her favorite road trip book is Ann Garvin's. I thought you said this would work. That is such a great book. I blurred that. I loved that book. Yeah. That was a good one. It's hilarious. She's yeah. so funny. That's such yeah. a funny book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, road trips rarely, if ever, um, go what you plan them to be. Right. right. Like right. we're going to stop the here plan. and then stop here and, and it falls apart. That's yeah. That's yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. 
on, on that same chubby checker road trip, we were stranded by the side of the road for like six or seven hours because we got caught in a sandstorm in Winslow, Arizona. So I've never been able to hear that song, you know? I was yes. standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. Arizona. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we were stuck in a random sandstorm that like was blinding. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And a flatbed board. <laughs> I've been on some really great road trips, but not with anyone famous. No. <laughs> Meg, Meg's gone on a lot of road trips with me. Well, yeah, so she's doing her road, road trip. Yeah, Meg is my roadie. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> we've um, we've all been on road trips together. Oh, That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe and we're we'll here to tell about this, it. Maybe exactly. we'll go on one again this spring. Wouldn't that be fun? <gasps> yes. So fun. Yes. yes. Oh, we love it. Meg says, and we run into service ponies on our road trips. Mm-hmm. You guys have all the fun. I was actually thinking when I was talking about, when I was saying to Amor that we did this um, book festival together, I can't remember where it was, but I like distinctly remember waking up and there were these like cows. It was like in a town and there were these cows that like this ice cream company had brought in and taking pictures with the cows. And wow, you're going to have to go back and figure I'm gonna out. I'm going to go back and look. Was. I just can't remember which one, but you know how they run together? Like it was yep. years ago and, and they just run together. Yep. Yep. All right, y'all. That was so much fun. Yeah, what a great night. And and what are we now like? Uh, what about two months away from um, from the wedding veil? Right? Am I am I thinking? Yeah, two weeks, weeks. Right? How many weeks? Yeah, Eight? I mean it's yeah. nine yeah. weeks from yesterday. So wow. yeah, and then that like, puts us probably at about thirteen for the home records, right? And yeah. thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, yeah, I can't believe it. Like I really can't. It's nerve wracking and exciting and is exciting. people have been so nice. I got some really nice, I mean, I have along the way, but I got some really nice reader emails today that, you know, when you're in those moments of like, Oh my gosh, I have a new book coming out and is it good? And are people going to like it? And, uh, yep. and you know how it just like makes your day when you, you know, you get a good review or you get a good email yes. or whatever it is. And you're like, okay, someone likes it. That's good. Someone likes it. <laughs> well, we've all well, read we it, love it and we it's very it. good. Yeah, and we so. think, People would be foolish not to go out and buy the Oxford Exchange. Spring <laughs> box. Yeah, Why was it not? Books, they yeah. Why would they fine. not? It's a no-brainer. Well, well I mean, even you, though, get the, you get them autographed, you know. Uh, even though fun. I know if I ask nicely, I'll get copies of your books. Um, <laughs> I'm going to buy that reading box because I want that sticky thing. Me too. <laughs> and then, <laughs> like notebook with the sticky thing. <laughs> and then, and then Patty, we don't have to make it weird when we ask for their autographs, right? Like we'll just have no. them. We don't have to be like, would you sign this? <laughs> like, like, it's not weird know? if anyone else asks, but it's weird if we ask, I feel like. Don't, don't make it weird. <laughs> you remember when you were little, I don't know if they still do it. Kristen, you can tell us when you, when you went to Disney world and you took around the, um, yeah. Autograph the, the, the autograph books, the little autograph books. You know, they don't, um, you can't get near the characters anymore. They stand uh, I think it's like a six foot distance because yeah. of COVID. So even like, if you go to one of the character meals, they don't actually come to your table there. So they don't sign autographs right now, but prior to COVID. And I think mm-hmm. in the COVID free future, hopefully. So, yeah. well, we're going to be well, like that with these sticky books. We're going to mm-hmm. make, we're going to mm-hmm. be like, will you sign it for me? Yeah. It's a good deal. Yeah. It's, you know, well, speaking of things that we want signed, super briefly, since we couldn't get out of Amor what he's working on, what are you guys working on? Um, <laughs> my head's too full of it. I know. Yeah. Oh, you know, I will, we can answer that in a second, but I did want to say Sean said there are a few questions in the chat about whether Oxford Exchange ships to Canada. I am 99% sure that they do. 
Um, but they are extremely responsive. If you email the store, mm -hmm. they will email you sure. right back and you will have an answer in 30 minutes. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. not after store hours, but you'll have an answer tomorrow morning if, if you email tonight. Right. So um, yeah. I, they, they're really accommodating and, and I bet you they would for maybe just a small additional fee. Hmm. Okay. So now what's everybody working on? So my, my next novel is due, um, it was supposed to be due February 1st. I just asked for an extra week on it. I have written the end, but I've never written a novel that is in, in so many jumbled parts because the characters kept kind of shifting on me along the way. Mm -hmm. um, so I will have it done by February 8th. I, I can see the shape it needs to take. I know the fixes I need to make. I've highlighted things, you know, in the manuscript. I know what I need to change. But um, but that is what I'm working on now. It is my book that'll be out next early next year. And um, it's World War II Paris um, and 1960 New York. Mm, I think people wait. think sometimes that um, they forget that when we're not here, we're writing. Like yeah. we're at yeah. the desk, right? That, that you know, pounding We're supposed away. to be writing. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and you've got your page proofs, right? Uh, yeah, I've got first pass page proofs that I'm doing. Let's see if I've got. You have a sample. I, no, I'm drinking wine here. Yeah, I'm drinking wine here. <laughs> so I'm so terrified. Oh, that you're gonna spill on the page proofs. Oh my God, I'm so terrified of that. Let me let me. Where are the? Do Hang on. Patty, what are you working on while she's searching? I am working. What do you want to say? No, I can say I can't say what it's about yet. I have to keep my lips. Well, yes. Mm -hmm. But um, I did write the end. I did. So awesome. we'll see what will become of it. More to come. More will be revealed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Chris, you're done. working on your 2023, right? Yes. And I was lamenting to the ladies earlier that I can't quite write the end. And I'm, I'm three super short chapters away from the end. And I've started all of them. But it's like, I just can't quite pull the trigger, which is just bizarre because I don't normally have that. But there's also it, something that Amor said really um, stuck with me. A, a lot of this story is about um, these women's backstories, the way they grew up and what they're, what they're, the ways that we're raised and the things that our mothers teach us and how even when we try, we think we're different, you know, those things kind of stick with us. Like we're imprinted with these kind of views. Yeah. And, um, and there are a couple things that I know I kind of need to go back and flesh out a little bit more. And I think maybe that's why I can't write the end. And so I think I'm going to have to do that first or something. Yeah. I don't know. I, when I can't write the end, it means there's something I haven't put in yeah. yet. Like, yeah. 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 Like there's, but there's normally I write the end and then I go back. Like I always have a big list of like, I know I need this yeah. and I need that and yeah. I need this because it becomes clear as I'm writing. Yeah. But I think, but it doesn't matter. I mean, whether I write the end now or I write it after that, yeah. it's still the same book. So. Yeah, I love what he said about, you know, comparing it to a symphony with the other mm -hmm. instruments coming yes. in, wanting to yeah. end it. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but sort of you want to end it with a giant flourish. And I think right. that's yeah. that's what we're always all hoping for, for yeah, sure. that you when you end a novel, that you send your readers mm -hmm. off with some mm -hmm. memorable um, impression. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So anyway, here's here's what. Um, oh, there so, they are. This is just, um, you know, very early. Um, and then I'm working on a, a, a and the ladies have been helping me um, critiquing synopsis for a, the next project. So that's all I can say about that. We're excited. 
You know, it, it's neat. I, I think that as writers, we keep um, so much of this to ourselves because it's kind of scary when you're mid book or mid synopsis or, you know, in the middle of something to kind of put it out there. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one of the great opportunities of having been part or, or being part of Friends in Fiction is that I've gotten to kind of intimately see the process of each of the three of you. And it's which awesome. has been a- it's it's ugly, but um no, it's, it it's, is. But it's it's been incredible because I think our for the four of us our our processes are all different. Like we yeah, all very different. come at it in different mm-hmm. ways, yeah. and we have different weak points, mm-hmm. different strong points, and um you know, we talk a lot on this show about process, but it's really interesting. I think to see it from the inside, that might be something yes. we should, we should talk a little bit more about. We really should. Yeah. We, should yeah. do a, we should do a podcast about it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. But you know what? Dinner. And I have to go play with my new puppy who I was going to show y'all on the show, but I don't know where he is. I think we'll just took him out. So. Well, bring, make him <laughs> we'll post him on the Facebook page. I will I'll post him. Maybe I'll bring him on the show next week. Okay. Yeah. I mean, all right. Yeah, sure. Bye ladies. Bye everybody. Bye. 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 Have a nice night. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.